All right. Well, good morning. Um, we have been in a series on Romans. So if you're uh, new uh, with us this morning, it's your first time. We're so glad you're here. Uh, we've been going through the book of Romans. We're going to take a number of weeks, about 20-something more weeks, to go through that letter. Um, but this morning, what I want to do is I want to kind of press pause on Romans and kind of step back. Last week, we looked at a passage together in Romans chapter 1 that kind of highlighted um, some of the ways the gospel helps us understand, in particular, our identity in relation to our sexuality. And so what we want to do over the next two weeks is we want to kind of focus in on that um, together. And so we're going to talk about that this morning. And I just wanted to start uh, by just recognizing, I think, where we are as a culture. Uh, and maybe I could sum it up this way. I think sexual confusion reigns right now. Sexual confusion reigns in our culture. Um, in his book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, uh, author Carl Truman observes that this statement, I am a woman trapped in a man's body, would have been received as incoherent gibberish 30 years ago. And yet, today, in our current cultural moment, to deny or even to question such a statement is to reveal oneself in the eyes of culture as stupid, immoral, and driven by some irrational phobia. Truman goes on to observe that it's not that any of the sexual confusion or sexual change or immorality is anything new. In fact, we observed that in Romans chapter 1 last week, that nothing is new since the fall in terms of our brokenness and our sin in the arena of our sexuality. But what he finds remarkable is how quickly, how quickly what was once deemed sexually immoral behavior in our society has now become normative. Now to cite just one example, um, I wanna talk a little bit about the issue of pornography. And it is just one example, uh, but it's incredibly prevalent in our culture today and what's interesting, especially in light of what Truman says, is that it no longer carries uh, the same kind of shame and social stigma that it once did. So it's part of this rapid change that he's talked about, what's become normative. Not only that, uh, pornography and a pornographic culture has desensitized entire generations of people in our culture uh, to sexually explicit material, that works its way into almost every sphere of life, including to children's programming, right? So it's, it's just seeped into everything. And the impact uh, of this kind of pornographic culture has had catastrophic consequences. So let's just talk about kids for a minute. So the Journal for Adolescent Health notes that direct correlations exist between the use of porn among kids just let that sink in. The use of porn among kids and increased levels of promiscuity, cynicism about monogamy and marriage, and growing disinterest in family and children as a part of life. And it's not just kids. So over 70%, this is from Barna and Covenant Eyes put these statistics together. Over 70% of men under the age of 30 use pornography on a weekly basis. 70% of men under the age of 30 use it weekly. 
over 50% of married men use it on a monthly basis. Unless we think that it's a problem that's kind of out there in the culture, almost the exact same statistics exist within the church. It also affects marriages. In 2002, the American Academy for Matrimonial Lawyers, in case you were wondering there is such a thing, uh, reported that 56%, 56% of all divorces involved at least one party having an obsessive interest in pornographic websites. Almost 60% of divorces have that as a key component of what's broken the marriage. So again, this sexualization of our society, uh, it affects all of us. And whether it's porn or it's the TV shows we binge on uh, a weekly basis or it's just in the language we use, uh, it's affected everything. And you can see it from premarital sex to human trafficking, abortion, suffering marriages, confused and abused children. It has affected all aspects of our life. We have a problem. We have a problem. In Romans 1, the Apostle Paul describes our problem. We read this last week. I want to read it again. He says, Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Paul is telling us, reminding us, sexual sin and brokenness reigns in a fallen world. And the question is, why is this such a problem? Why is this such a problem in our culture? Why is this such a problem in our lives? I think it's important to recognize that sexuality and all it represents touches in the deepest aspects of what it means to be human. It touches on our male and our femaleness. It's connected to our instinctive need to procreate and to survive. It's uh, connected to our desire for true intimacy and lasting connection with one another. It's connected to our hopes for our families and for our homes. In other words, few things uh, are uh, as significant in our life as human beings as sexuality, which is why sexuality can also be a huge uh, part of our pain and our brokenness in this life. Within the context of marriage and home, sex can give joy and contribute to the experiences of true intimacy. But when the fire escapes the fireplace, so to speak, right, it can become dangerous and destructive. For many, therefore, sexuality has become the cause of great disappointment, of frustration, and even pain. To put it in a phrase, we have exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Here's what the lie is. Our culture says sex can give us what we want, can give us what we long for, namely identity and fulfillment. And it's a lie. Instead of God's vision for sex, our society offers us a view of sexuality that is increasingly superficial, lacks wisdom, and is out of sync and even antithetical 
to God's design for sex. And as a result, we are increasingly obsessed in our culture with sex, and we are increasingly broken as sexual people. So where do we turn? Where do we turn for help? It's what I want us to do for the next two weeks. I want us, again, to step back from Paul's teaching in Romans chapter one and consider together what would it mean to actually look to Jesus with this question. It's what Paul is inviting us to do. Look to Jesus. Look to our Savior. Look to him. Not our culture, not our politics, not courts, not our feelings or our desires, but to Jesus when it comes to our sexuality. In the Gospel of John, we just read, Jesus has this encounter with a woman who is sexually broken. She's had five failed marriages. Five failed marriages, and she's now living with, and we'll just be blunt, having sex with a man who is not her husband. Jesus meets her at the well in the middle of the day, It's socially unacceptable for a Jewish man to engage with her publicly as a Samaritan woman. But Jesus, he's come to the well that day to have a conversation with her. The conversation takes unexpected twists and turns and is layered with meaning. A question about water and natural thirst turns to deeper longings and Jesus offers this living water that we just heard about. Now, I... I want us to use this passage um, and uh, use it as a mirror. My good friend um, and pastor Sam Ferguson, he, he, he uses this as, as, this as an analogy in some of his teaching to hold up a mirror to us as followers of Jesus to consider our own sexual brokenness. And I think it's a really helpful way to understand uh, what's happening here. And so with his permission, I'm borrowing this approach from him. But what I wanna do is I, wanna, I want to invite us to be brave this morning. I want to invite us to be honest enough to see ourselves in this woman's experience, to let her brokenness help reveal ours, and to let her thirst help us connect with our own, so that we might stop drinking from the broken cisterns of our culture and instead turn to the living water that Jesus offers here in John chapter 4. Jesus did not expose this woman's sexual brokenness to shame her or condemn her, and that is not our goal either. It is to offer living water that saves and satisfies. So that's what we want to do. Uh, We want Jesus to do that for us this morning. So here's the the fundamental question I want to ask, and then we're going to answer this question over the next two weeks. The question is, what happens when we place our sexuality at the feet of Jesus? What happens when we place our sexuality at the feet of Jesus? And I wanna highlight three answers to that question, one this week, and then we'll double dick and hit two next week. So first answer is this. When we place our sexuality at the feet of Jesus, Jesus saves us from the idolatry of sex. Jesus saves us from the idolatry of sex. What does that mean? Well, to put it another way, Jesus saves us from believing the lie that sex is the defining and controlling aspect of our identity. So we're gonna talk about that. Looking at John chapter four, it's interesting. If you think about this conversation that we just read, what's surprising to me is what Jesus doesn't say to this woman. 
just put yourself in this moment. And you've encountered this woman. She's had five husbands, five divorces, now living with and sexually engaged with this man that's not her husband. And so what could Jesus have said to her? All kinds of things. All kinds of things. He could have said to her, um, I, I know a great uh, relationship therapist in Sychar. Here's his card. I'd love for you to go get some counseling, relational counseling, right? Love counseling, but that's not what Jesus says. He could have told her to pray for the perfect man. You've just been after the wrong guy. You just need the right guy in your life. Pray. I love prayer. Believe in prayer. Jesus doesn't say that either. He could have given her a Christian dating advice, handed her a copy of I Kiss Dating Goodbye, right, and sent her on her way. Uh, he could have uh, taken a cultural approach. And this is what our culture says. He could have said, hey, I want to liberate you from all the sexual constraints of your Samaritan culture, right, and invite you to have as many partners as your heart desires. Go with what feels good. But he doesn't say any of those things. Instead, the conversation takes an unexpected turn. He moves quickly from her physical sexual relationship to a spiritual one. Jesus, in verse 22, 20 through 22, says, where's the right place to worship? That's what he wants to talk to her about. Let's talk about worship. Let's talk about the right place. Verses 23 through 24, let's talk about the type of worshipers that God is seeking. And then he goes on to talk about the Messiah. Who's the Messiah, the one you've been waiting for, the one you've been longing for? It's me. It's Jesus. Verse 25 and 26. And so what happens is, is this conversation moves from sexual to spiritual like that, from her physical intimacy with others to her intimacy with God. Jesus says your worship of God is what matters the most. That's what he's telling her. It's your worship, your relationship with God that matters the most. To use our, our, our culture's language, Jesus is saying be Godward oriented. Take on a Godward orientation because that's more important than your sexual orientation. Godward oriented, Godward worship. Jesus says to this woman, to us, sex is not your savior. God is. Worship God. What happens when our sexuality is laid before Jesus? He takes on our idols. He dethrones the idol that's sitting on the throne of our life. And so I think faced with that, Jesus is asking us, can we be honest? Can we be honest? Can we say that sex has become a God in our culture? And can we say it's become at least a competing savior in the American church? It's not just out there. If we're not sure, I want to think together about some evidence that maybe it has become a God in our culture and maybe even in our own lives. I want to talk about three things just briefly, identity, behavior, and fulfillment. Because I think these things will reveal that sex has become an idol. So identity, let's talk about identity. In our culture, sexuality or sexual orientation plays a decisive role in determining identity. Young people are pressured, think about this, people are being pressured now to declare to classmates and family members if they're gay, if they're straight, 
if they're bisexual, if they're pansexual, and an ongoing array of options. Just a few months ago, uh, an elementary school in our neighborhood, uh, a student at, at the school was told by her teacher that because she liked sparkly things and loved that one of her female classmates had her nails painted, her teacher told her that she might be bisexual and she should go home and talk to her parents about that. This is a commonplace event where identity is being linked to sexuality in an unhealthy and unhelpful and ungodly way. Athletes, movie stars, celebrities of all kinds tell the world, this is my sexual identity. It's a declaration in our culture. In her book, The End of Sexual Identity, Why Sex is Too Important to Define Who We Are, Janelle Williams-Paris notes that our culture sends a clear message that our sexual desires determine our identity, and she notes this is novel. This is new in history. This is not the way it's always been. Of all humans who have ever lived, very few have had sexual identities, in fact. Sexual identity is a Western 19th century invention about what it means to be human. That's exactly what it is. It's grounded in a belief that the direction of one's sexual desire is identity creating and earns one a certain role in society marked by certain labels, such as, I'm gay, I'm lesbian, I'm straight, I'm bi, and etc. These identities are presented as natural. This is just how people are made. This is how people are wired. And they're rooted in our deepest desire. Sexual identity has to be therefore discovered, named, declared, and expressed in order for each person to feel fully alive and fulfilled. That's the narrative of our culture. And it's a novel one. It's new. It's not just identity, though. It's behavior. Along with shaping our identity, sexual desires have the power to drive our behavior Once we're aware of our sexual feelings, in order to be your true, authentic self, you must act in accordance with your feelings. See how that works? Thus, sex determines what moral behavior actually is. Or consider fulfillment. So identity, behavior, fulfillment. In our culture, sex holds the keys to your hope and your happiness. Our culture believes the idea of going through your life and not having sex, for example, is preposterous. That you could ever even do that is crazy. And I can prove it to you. The 40-year-old virgin, that movie, nobody had to tell you that's a comedy. Right? Because our culture says that's ridiculous. That's so absurd that anyone could ever live that way. It's inhumane. Something is off when we say that our sexual feelings are the most important thing. If you are your sexual feelings, then you are only as whole and fulfilled as your sexual fortunes. So here's the thing, stepping back. Identity, uh, behavior, fulfillment. If something in your life determines your identity, your behavior, and holds the key to your uh, hope and happiness, you know what that is? It's a God. It's a God. It's an idol. And though sex is a good, wonderfully godly gift, it is. The Bible affirms that. Jesus affirms that. It is a good gift. Here's the truth. It makes a terrible and oppressive God. 
we have exchanged the truth for a lie. The truth is you don't have to figure out your sexual identity. I just wanna say that again, because I think this is a word of freedom. You do not have to figure out your sexual identity. Sex is a good gift from God. It's critically important as a part of a good and healthy and intimate marriage, but it was never meant to control who you are and how you must act and whether or not you'll be happy in this life. You are not your sexual identity. Your moral choices don't have to be dictated by your sexuality. Your hope for a meaningful and purposeful life do not depend on your sexuality. That's the truth. That's the truth of the gospel. In the guise of freedom, the world turns us over to the oppressive God of sex. But the truth is you are more than your sex life, more than your sexual brokenness. And so in your confusion, your pain, your grief, here's the message this morning. There's good news. There's good news for sexually confused people and hurting people. God is greater than any of our idols. God offers us true freedom. And Jesus can heal and forgive and he can make you whole, including in your sexuality and in your relationships. We've all been tempted to exchange the truth about God for a lie, to worship sex rather than the creator of sex. And again, here's the good news. In John 4, 26, Jesus declares to this woman in her sexual brokenness, he declares to her that he is the Messiah. He is the savior that she's been waiting for. The good news is that Jesus Christ is the Messiah and he is the savior that you and I have been waiting for. He can deliver us from the bondage and strongholds in our life and restore us from all the lies that this world and the enemy have told us and used to steal from us. How? Because Jesus invites us to drink the living water. He invites us into life with him, to surrender and entrust our whole selves to him, including our sexuality, to confess our powerlessness over our sin, to seek his forgiveness, to receive his unmerited love for us, and to give ourselves, our whole selves, including our sexuality, to lay it at his feet in faithful obedience to him. The critical question is not, what is my sexual identity? The critical question is, who does God say that you are? Who does God say you are? In Christ, you discover who you really are. You're a beloved child of God, made by him and for life to the full in him. That's who you are, and that's the good news. We're going to stop there this morning, and next week we're going to press further into this and what the gospel has to say. The more, the more good news, there's more good news for us living in a sexually confused and broken world. We're going to talk about the fact that Jesus invites us to lay this at his feet and that he gives us the good gift of sex and that ultimately Jesus gives us the satisfaction we long for. We're going to talk about that next week. As I close, I just want to uh, encourage you and realize that this is very personal. And maybe I could just say this. This is very personal for every person in this room. 
because all of us are affected by sin. And that includes in our sexuality. And so I really believe the Lord wants to do healing in us and deliver us. And he wants us to have real freedom in Christ. Uh, and so we're going to be talking about it. That's why we're talking about that this, this, this week and next week. And we're also going to have Sam Albury come on Friday and Saturday. And so I just want to encourage you, if you haven't heard about this, if you haven't registered for it, if you can be here Friday and Saturday, we're going to gather at Seven Mile Road just down the street. We're partnering with them to bring Sam here, and he's going to talk about what Jesus has to say about our sexuality. And God will move through it because Sam is anointed in this. So I want to encourage you to come. You can learn more at apostleshouston.org, and you can register there. Just let me say this, in Christ, right, God is offering us healing and freedom and wholeness. That's what he's offering you today, in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that you are the one who has met us, Lord, in our sexual brokenness. And Lord, honestly, sometimes that's really hard to admit. Lord, it's painful. Lord, it's scary. Lord, it's something, though, that we desperately need. And so like that woman at the well, Lord, would you speak words of truth and grace to us? Lord, I pray that every one of us would know the power and the life-giving freedom that comes through the living water of Jesus. So Lord, wherever we are this morning, Lord, would you meet us? Holy Spirit, would you meet us? Would you do what only you can do? Lord, I pray that you would make us into a people who are being healed and delivered and made whole in Christ. Lord, I pray we'd be a community of people who are willing to be honest and vulnerable and come before you and lay even our sexuality at your feet. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your grace. Pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.